Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sophie McIntosh on her Man Booker Prize long-listed debut novel, The Water Cure. Sophie McIntosh won the 2016 White Review Short Story Prize and the 2016 Virago Stylist Short Story Competition and has been published in Granta Magazine and Tank Magazine, among others. Her debut novel, The Water Cure, which we're going to be talking about today, was recently long-listed for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. Sophie, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks for having me. How would you describe The Water Cure? I tend to describe it as a sort of eerie feminist fable Um, It's about three girls who live on an island um, separated from the rest of the world and it's it's very much a sense of being out of time. And it's it's often described in in reviews as a a feminist dystopia, which, you know, has become, there's there's a number of those around at the moment. But in the book, it's sort of self-described as a failed utopia. And I wonder which, I mean, I guess a failed utopia is a dystopia, but, you know... Do you think the failed dystopia is a is a more accurate reflection? I think it is set in the future, so I would I'm comfortable describing it as a dystopia. Um, I know that's kind of like a bit of a buzzword at the moment, and there's a lot of books that describe themselves as feminist dystopias, and I do think there's such a wide range of these books. And mine isn't like a swashbuckling kind of adventure tale. It's not a dystopia, maybe like The Power or The Handmaid's Tale, where there's a lot of very involved world building. Cause it's very much more focused on the sisters themselves. It's more, I, I guess I kind of thought of it as being a dystopia, but we are only focused on their will. So what is happening is important, but it's more about what filters down to the family. Um, I think it could be dystopia or failed utopia. I, either way, I think it depends on your interpretation. I wanted to talk about how you got to that, you know, not having all of the elaborate world building that one would normally expect in this type of book? Because first of all, I understood that when it first started out, it was quite a different novel. Yeah, when I started out, it was more of a kind of eco-disaster thing, um, a lot more kind of sci-fi. I wanted to write this very big sci-fi book. But then I just it just it became a natural choice because I was more interested in what the sisters were doing and what they were feeling and their world. So for me, I was like, well, it's there's something has happened on the mainland, something has happened to take them away from it. And I'm, I'm interested in that but I'm more interested in how it affects them on like a granular level. Like I wanted to really zoom in. And of course they are, I mean, fundamentally 
you know, captive on this island and so are in a position of ignorance themselves and therefore aren't really aware, only know what's going on in the outside world through what they are told. And that indeed might not necessarily be entirely accurate. Um, and so to get to that point, you know, once you'd, you know, you'd, you embarked upon this bigger novel, so was that then a... I guess, you know, multiple drafts and a, and, a, and a sort of paring down process. Because, as I said, the girls, you know, don't know that much about the outside world. So, of course, we as readers don't find out that much about it themselves. Yeah, I think I definitely in earlier drafts, I went more into detail about kind of things that were happening. And it was a very conscious decision, um, the amount of information that I gave out. So I kind of, I feel like I, there's a lot more behind it than what I've revealed and yeah, I've just been, I was very kind of sparing with the information I wanted to release because I just, I, yeah, I guess I wanted to keep the mystery and things and maybe I could have like given a little bit more. <laughs> um, but I like, I like the ambiguity. Um, and I, when, I, when I was writing kind of the original first draft and it was like kind of the big sci-fi adventure thing, there was a lot more, I guess a lot more detail about, you know, how they go about their daily life and maybe more action. But then I kept zoning in on their lives again and like these strange rituals they'd have together to keep them safe and the more I kind of wrote those bits the more I was like oh actually this is like the heart of the story this is what is important to me the idea of how do you keep yourself safe in a dangerous world and specifically a world dangerous as a woman there's lots in this book that we can't really talk about because there is a sexual mystery you know there is there is stuff that we don't want to give away but before we talk about well, I want to talk about the the girls in more detail but the let's just talk about the central setup so these three sisters they're living on ostensibly an island away from the mainland with um, their mother who's only known in the book as mother and their father who is who is known as king why are they there they're there to protect them from the outside world um, and some kind of undisclosed disasters happened which has uh, resulted in a disease or kind of toxicity which is fatal to women but not fatal to men. So men can spread it on uh, but women will be grievously affected so they've been taken to this uh, safe place, this island and raised there away from the rest of the world to protect them from it. But then obviously there's the ambiguity. Is there really a disease? You know, what is the disease a metaphor for patriarchy or is it a literal disease? There's some interpretations about it. But um, yeah, I, I definitely saw it as an actual disease while writing the book. I think for me it was, yeah, it was like a metaphor for patriarchy and the idea of, you know, living in a world that does feel like literally dangerous because it feels abstractly dangerous a lot. But there are obviously very concrete threats within that kind of abstraction. And it's interesting that you say that because, like, I, I mean, interestingly, reading it, I guess, you know, weirdly reading it as a man, could have sounded like one of those men on the internet now that go on about how there isn't really a patriarchy mm-hmm. or something. I was reading it thinking, okay, well, this clearly is not really happening. They're being told that this thing is is the situation in the outside world to stop them from leaving. But then, of course, you know, fundamentally, that then even if it wasn't real, is still the scheme of a man who is keeping them there, you know, vaguely against their will, who happens to be called king. Yeah, I guess it's the idea of, like, what is the real danger? If there is, even if there is a danger outside that they're hiding from, is it better, like, better the devil you know? <laughs> or And they don't know, we we don't know. It, it's, it kind of, I guess, just makes this, yeah, this this tension between which would be worse to like live inside this strange utopia where you're protected apparently but you are still undergoing lots of great harm or take your chances in a world that you know is definitely harmful. 
So the, the three sisters, Grace, Leah and Skye, tell us something about them. So Grace is the older sister. Um, she's the only one. She was a sister who was uh, a baby before they arrived at the island. Um, she is half sister to the others. And she is kind of, I don't know, I see her as like the tougher sister. She's very much no nonsense. She's quite emotionally cold. Leah is the middle sister. She is a lot more emotionally vulnerable and needy. This neediness um, can create problems then when new people come to the island. And Skye is the only one who's actually been born on the island. So she has this purity and is very protected by everyone else on the island. And they just all have very different dynamics to me. But I think the dynamics that I've seen in sibling relationships, in my own sibling relationships, in my own, you know, family experience and that of friends and things. So I was interested in how these dynamics work together, but how they work together in a world that's isolated and you know like how how strong they can be and how they tie into other instincts like the instinct to survive and the story is split into chapters that are narrated often by grace often by leah uh, but more unusually some chapters that are narrated by the three girls as one voice tell me about why you chose to do that well i was interested in um kind of how how close they are. I wanted to demonstrate how the bond they have because they've only ever known each other. They've only ever known each other in their family. So they are similar in lots of ways. So it made sense to me they would have this kind of shared narrative voice. Um, I was inspired as well by the Virgin Suicides and that's narrated in a kind of chorus voice, but it's very like a male gaze chorus voice. Um, but mainly it was a kind of very deliberate narrative decision on my part because I wanted to have them speaking together but then speaking apart, so you can see them growing apart because the, the collective narrative voice really peters out throughout the book. And it does return, but it kind of just demonstrates the times when they are kind of speaking as one and the times when they are very, very, you know, very, very, very separate from each other. And I think that separation can be quite traumatic and a different dynamic for them. And interesting you mentioned the Virgin Suicides because I obviously thinking more of the film adaptation rather than the novel itself, but the, the sort of visual language of that film I was reminded of quite a lot by the imagery in this book. Was that deliberate? I don't think that film specifically, but I, I'm definitely very visual when I write. I like to kind of um, imagine things. Um, I'm quite inter like inspired by films, and I, I kind of, um, before, before I wrote, I was very into art and music, and so I kind of... I think I drew a lot from those mediums and I just always saw the scenes before I wrote them almost. Like I found it a lot easier to kind of, you know, visualise a swimming pool and what would happen within it. It was it was really fun. It was like having a little film in my head. <laughs> the central act of the book is the arrival on the island. So King, basically at the beginning, has disappeared. So he's set up this situation where the women are there under his protection and then he disappears right at the beginning of the novel, um, presumed dead. And then partway through the novel, three men arrive on the island, James, Lou and Gwil. Tell me something about them. Where have they come from? So the three men, they're not really fleshed out very much in the book. I will be the first to admit. And I have I've seen people kind of be like, oh, I wish I'd seen more of the men or the men are very one dimensional. I'm like, yes, they are one dimensional. That was kind of like a conscious decision <laughs> on my part, because I guess for me, it's all about the sisters and their voice and their story. And they've never met men before, apart from their father. Before. Yeah, so I kind of didn't want to like create these caricatures, but I did want to just, they are essentially like plot devices, which sounds a bit mean to them, because I did develop a sort of affection for them the way you do with all characters. But to me, I, I didn't feel 
any kind of hesitance about just using them as essentially a little narrative hinge just as a kind of a trigger for events to happen and um, the events that I felt needed to happen to drive the story onwards. And you say that, you know, you couldn't help but develop some affection for those men, which is clearly exactly what <laughs> happens in in the story, despite all of their best intentions. The, well, Leah particularly starts to fall for one of them. Yeah, well, they're all human. I don't think I don't think the book is saying that men are bad or that women are bad or anything like that. I don't think there is kind of the women are not perfect in the book and the men are not all bad in the book as well. It's not definitely not like a polemic saying that all men are terrible and all men want to kill all women and stuff that wasn't like my that wasn't my intention um so yeah i think it was natural for me to kind of you know feel a bit sorry for them at points ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sophie McIntosh and we're talking about her novel, The Water Cure. Although we've already discussed, Sophie, in, in the first part, that, you know, this this is a very pared down novel. You just described your sort of, you know, enjoyment of imagining the, the swimming pool and, the, you know, the house. Um, tell us something about actually creating that very, very sort of like micro world on the island. I based it a lot on where I grew up. So I grew up in Pembrokeshire um, by the sea. So I kind of uh, based it on the landscape around it, but I took some liberties because it's set in the future, so I could make it like really hot. But I did try and kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm very influenced by kind of Welsh mythology 
and you know the landscape and how those things work together and the kind of very natural magic of where I grew up and so visually those were like kind of good cues for me um but also when I work I listen to music and I would make like a specific kind of soundtrack and at the time I was working full-time in an office when I wrote The Water Cure so I would just sit at my desk and I would do my work but because a lot of it was quite admin-y I would just listen to the soundtrack literally for like eight hours a day for about like a year (laughs) and I think just yeah listening to those songs kind of helping me develop the images and the scenes almost like yeah like like having a little film of the of the book playing in my head all the time and um just kind of helping me tap into it and think of it and actually I kind of like I kind of miss doing that now because I still do it but I don't have like eight hours at a desk to do it anymore kind of my day is a lot more um interesting (laughs) or like fragmented so it's 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 interesting not to have that dead time that helped me make a very vivid world because I was thinking about it literally all the time I wanted to talk a bit more about the the internal world of the sisters and the sort of bond between the three and I grew up with four sisters myself and um, you mentioned earlier about the sort of you know the bonds between siblings and friends tell me something more about that sort of like you know that tight-knit bond do you have sisters I do I've got one sister but I grew up um with seven cousins and all about my age well a little bit younger and I'm the oldest um and we all yeah we grew up very very close we spent a lot of our childhood together um so it was it was interesting to me because you know you grow apart and you are close me and my sister in particular are very very close and we we were so close that we had like a secret language she pretty much didn't talk until she was like five years old because we had almost like a psychic bond my mum describes it as I would I would talk for her because we were only we were only a year apart in age and it was just there was something so kind of so pure and so interesting to me that very fundamental level of love and what you might do um, for that kind of love and how how not how not having that suddenly or having that kind of restricted or taking away from you what that could do to a person and you're you're bilingual as well right do you yeah. think that how do you think that is reflected in your writing style I think on a practical level just because I well, I went to Welsh speaking school so kind of I was used to switching between languages all the time um, but also made me study a lot of Welsh literature which at the time I really hated but now um, I think it's given me just like maybe an intrinsic knowledge of kind of rhythms and stuff. I had to memorise like, so many Welsh poems and Welsh poetry um, is just so lyrical and so rhythmic in a way that I think just really kind of seeps into well, I think it's, I think it has affected the way I write because I just things feel right when I write them if that makes sense like I, I, I'm very into the rhythm and the structure of sentences I like reading them out loud and I did do poetry as well before I wrote fiction um I did try my hand at writing some Welsh poetry but it was very bad <laughs> but I do think that kind of that brain switching for me um was useful and because Welsh is like such a beautiful language as well it's a really beautiful language and the rhythms and the you know the sound just the sound of the words I think well you've also as I mentioned in the intro won prizes for short stories how was there then the sort of the transition to writing a novel obviously we've talked about how this novel is now a very different novel to what was originally conceived but how did you find the sort of transition to to the novel I think I'd been writing novels besides short stories um for the whole time essentially so it wasn't a big leap for me but it's definitely a very different headspace at least as a short story if it doesn't work you've only wasted maybe a few weeks on it with a novel it was very scary to think 
I have to write this long thing and I have to invest all this time and it really just might be awful and it might go absolutely nowhere but I still want to write it. I think yeah short stories are kind of have their own small ecosystem and then a long book is more of a chipping away at something over a long period of time. So both of them I really enjoyed doing but they do feel very very different. You mentioned in the first part the the Virgin Suicides again and I mentioned the idea of you know there's the feminist dystopia but I just wanted to talk about what other writers were perhaps an influence on this particular book. So definitely um, Angela Carter who I absolutely love. Um, I also really love um, the short stories of Joy Williams. I really love Maggie Nelson and Bluettes I think is probably one of the most important books to me. Um, even if things kind of haven't impacted thematically towards the water cure, I think I'm just I'm very drawn to style and very interested in kind of a vivid but clean but very surreal thing. I think yeah, the Magic Toy Shop by Angela Carter was a really important one for me because um, it just you know you can you can have a story which is based in the real world but still has a real uncanniness to it and the power of the uncanniness really transforms it but you never kind of, you never forget that you're actually in the world. It's kind of out of time, but it feels very relevant, if that makes sense. And it's, it's a debut novel, but there was, you know, there was quite a auction for it originally. And then obviously now it's been long listed for the booker. How have you found the reception? I've been thrilled. I mean, it's very, it's very surreal. I never, I never thought in a million years I'd be long listed for the booker. I mean, I never thought in a million years it would go to auction. To me, it's been, you know, it's kind of a labour of love. It's this strange, strange little book that I just became so obsessed with and so intertwined and I put so much into it so much of myself and so much of like my obsessions and interests and I don't know thoughts I almost feel like I kind of writing a book is like you're psychoanalyzing yourself the things kind of reading it back in edits I'd be like I don't where does this come where has this come from but also I know exactly where it's come from so it feels strangely personal and to have it out in the world is very scary um but so I'm very relieved that the reception generally has been really, really good. And to have it long listed for the booker, I mean, it's it's kind of the dream of, of any novelist, let alone a debut novelist. So I'm really happy about that. And just one more thing, and then I'll get you to read some if you would. What's next? Um, so I'm working on a second novel at the moment, and I definitely want to turn to short stories and do some more of them. But I think, yeah, my, my priority is just trying to finish another book. And it's going interestingly it's just it's just interesting writing another book after writing a book already because I assumed I would kind of have it figured out but I do not have it figured out but hopefully I will (laughs) so I'm just going to read the first section of the beginning which is narrated by Grace, Leah and Skye collectively once we have a father but our father dies without us noticing it's wrong to say that we don't notice We are just absorbed in ourselves that afternoon when he dies. Unseasonable heat. We squabble as usual. Mother comes out on the terrace and puts a stop to it by raising her hand, a swift motion against the sky. Then we spend some time lying down with lengths of muslin over our faces, trying not to scream. And so he dies with none of us women bearing witness, none of us accompanying him. It is possible we drove him away, that the energy escaped our bodies despite our attempts to stifle it and became a smog clinging around the house, the forest, the beach. That was where we last saw him. He put a towel on the ground and lay down parallel to the sea, flat on the sand. He was resting, 
letting sweat gather along his top lip, his bare head. The interrogation begins at dinner when he fails to turn up. Mother pushes the food and plates from the table in her agitation, one sweep of the arm, and we search the endless rooms of the house. He is not in the kitchen, soaking fish in a tub of brine, or pulling up withered potatoes outside, inspecting the soil. He is not on the terrace at the top of the house, surveying the still surface of the pool three floors below, and he is certainly not in the pool itself, for the sound of his splashing is always violent enough to carry. He is not in the lounge, nor the ballroom, the piano untouched, the velvet curtains heavy with undisturbed dust. Moving up the staircase again, a spine through the centre of the house, we check our rooms individually, our bathrooms, we know he will not be there. From our scattered formation we come together to search the garden, search deeper, sticking long branches into the pond's green murk. Eventually we are out on the beach and we realise one of the boats has gone too, a furrow in the sand where it has been pushed out. For a moment we think he has gone for supplies, but then we remember he was not wearing the protective white suit, we did not do the leaving ceremony, and we look towards the rounded glow of the horizon, the air peach ripe with toxicity, and mother falls to her knees. Our father had a big and difficult body. When he sat down, his swimming shorts rode up and exposed the whiteness of his thigh where it was usually covered. If you killed him, it would be like pushing over a sack of meat. It would require someone much stronger than us. The father shape he leaves behind quickly becomes a hollow that we can put our grief into, which is an improvement in a way. So I've been talking to Sophie McIntosh. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Man Booker Prize 2018 Longlisted The Water Cure, uh, which is out now from Hamish Hamilton. Sophie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.